Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. If you've registered for the Pleiadian lineup Starseed Quest in May, be sure to check your email for important info before this Friday so you don't lose your spot. And the next quest will be August uh, 12th through 15th. So our special guest this evening is author Cheryl Costa, who will talk about her new book, Magical Musings of a Rogue Witch. When a pagan priestess or priest retires from pastoral duties with a circle, coven, or clan, there is an expectation that they will write a book about their life in the craft. Some write books of spells, others the art of managing craft-oriented groups of people. Still others write a memoir about their life in the craft. Cheryl chose to write an alternative and non-sectarian view of the theory of mystical physics and applied magical and divination mechanics. This is not a list of spells and types of crystals to purchase. Instead, she explains how to seek within the self to tap and enhance your mystical powers. Magic is about shaping reality. The basic technique of magic is simple enough in theory. It only requires communicating our intention from our talking self to the younger self to the great consciousness, higher self, for manifestation. Magic isn't hard, and it isn't easy either. Practicing the art of magic requires training, focus, practice, discipline, and a flexibility to adapt. Ponder for a moment the idea that reality is a construct. Therefore, it's bendable and malleable. Furthermore, consider that real-life mystics have been massaging reality's pliable points using metaphysical techniques for millennia. You can find Cheryl's book on Amazon. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds not heard in the mainstream. And at the top of the show, whoops, I already said that, do you have starseed children or grandchildren? Are you constantly trying to get them off the screens? I know it's a big problem for many, so I've recently written a book to help children want to put the phone down and reconnect with Mother Nature by understanding the animal guides of Native America. It's called Magical Messages from the Animal Kingdom, and it is also on Amazon. And You can just type Ariel Taylor in the search bar, and you'll get right to it. And we'd like to thank Kathy and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight. And on our main website, we have available the Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations, which are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with either Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. Lavendar has now retired from doing sessions, so she can concentrate on finishing her book and continue to write for Starseeds. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you're going to get a window of 10 hours of power. You can find out exactly when that happens just by requesting your solar return timing. And that usually takes less than a week, so well before your birthday, you can ask for that. So 
first up this evening, let me switch my screen back. I would like to um, find, there's Anastasia, <laughs> introduce Anastasia with her Starseed News. Well, hello, Ariel. Good evening, everybody. It's great hey. to be with you. We've got lots of news. It's a beautiful spring day here. I hope you're enjoying this change in the seasons. The daffodils are up and the red buds, red buds are starting to bud, and it's beautiful. Well, I want to start out tonight's, tonight's story by a really amazing, um, unselfish act. This is a story about an Olympic gold medalist, Olympic medalist, excuse me. She won the silver. Her name is Maria Andrzejczyk. Andrzejczyk. Uh, she's 25 years old. She captured the silver medal for javelin at the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. It was a triumph over the odds when she did that, however, because she missed a medal opportunity at the 2016 Rio Games. Um, she was only two centimeters short of that, and she'd also overcome shoulder, shoulder surgery in 2017 and another health crisis in 2018 before she could compete again in 2020. So she went through a lot to earn this medal. But it just so happens that she heard about a fundraiser for an eight-month-old boy who was born with a serious heart defect, and she felt inspired to help this boy beat the odds as well. Now, his family needed 380000 U.S. dollars to perform a life-saving operation that would be performed in Barcelona, Spain. They'd already raised half from their own campaign to raise money, but they were running out of time. She said, it didn't take me long to decide. What was it that she was deciding? Well, it was to auction off her Olympic medal to raise the remaining money for this little boy to have his heart surgery. Oh, wow. She did that. She put her Olympic medal up for auction with a winning bid of $125,000 that came from a Polish supermarket chain. They bought the medal, but guess what they did? They later told the young Olympic medalist that she could keep her medal even though they had paid for it. Aww. So what a story. She was willing to sacrifice this to bring life to a child and a supermarket chain that did a good deed and didn't take her medal but helped the child anyway. That's wow. wonderful. Well, there is all kinds of news out about the... Um, movement towards green energy and the environment, cleaning up the environment. It's just remarkable. I mean, one could easily feel dismal realizing all of the pollution problems, environmental problems we have. We are not told about all the work that's doing to solve these problems. And I've got news for you. It's not impossible by no means whatsoever. Let's start with a story about renewable energy in steel. Now, when companies produce coal excuse me, burn coal to produce steel, they spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that amounts to about 9% of all direct emissions from fossil fuels, and that is 2.6 gigatons of carbon dioxide. That's a lot. Now, one Swedish company has figured out how to make steel without coal. It's, it's a company in Stockholm, SSAB they're called, and they have recently announced that they have, that they have produced the world's first fossil fuel-free steel. How did they do it? They're using hydrogen and electricity from renewable energy sources. 
Automakers, automakers Volvo and Mercedes-Benz have signed up for the first deliveries of this steel, and the steel company hopes to be able to produce this coal-free steel on an industrial scale by 2026. So in the future, you'll be driving an automobile that has been made with carbon-free steel. Remarkable. Wow. Also, there's a man in Ireland who grew up kayaking around the southwest coast. He's 20 years old. His name is Fionn. And as he was growing up, he saw and witnessed the devastating effects of ocean pollution firsthand. Clear up in uh, Ireland and the northern countries, they have pollution as well. He was shocked by the amount of plastic that was on the shores. So he applied himself to learn more about the estimated 300 million tons of plastic waste that we produce every year. Now, the most dangerous form of plastic, as he discovered, is the kind that we can't see. That's microplastics, which are tiny fragments that end up in fish and in our bodies. And they tell us that on the average, each human being ingests five grams of microplastics every week, about the equivalent of a credit card. And we get that from the food that we eat and the water that we drink. But that's not the only source. We even pick up more microscopic plastic particles from carpets and synthetic textiles. Well, after he noticed that oil spill residue on the beach attracted plastic particles, Fionn set out to design a device that uses ferrofluid, which is a type of magnetic liquid, to remove microplastics from drinking water. And in 2019, his prototype, which removed 87% of microplastics from a water sample, won him the grand prize at the Google Science Fair. He's now a chemistry student at the University of Grogningen, excuse me, and he's working with an Ohio-based company to fine-tune his invention for use in houses and potentially in wastewater treatment plants. He said, I love the process of inventing and doing things for the planet, and I have many more ideas in my head. Wow. And many countries around the world are now abandoning, abandoning fossil fuels for renewable energy sources. Uh, people are wondering, what are we going to do with the toxic landscapes that are being left behind? There is so much to clean up. And Norway is one very good idea. It has, it has decided to turn the country's last Arctic coal mine, located along the archipelago, archipelago excuse me, between Norway and the North Pole, they're going to turn that into a nearly 3,000-square-kilometer natural park. Now, this was already, this area that had been coal mined was already of vital ecological importance because 20 million birds nest on the islands during the summer, while about 3,000 polar bears use its sea ice as prime hunting grounds. So now this will be a brand-new national park that is going to unify this wilderness, and over time they say it will return to a pristine and well-managed Echo environment. So turning it back to nature. And wow. also, there is really a move now to get away from stuff, okay, buying new stuff, our consumption. And this is a, an attempt to uh, reuse products. Um, you know, what we get when we go to secondhand stores. Uh, the fact is that fast fashion same-day shipping, and planned obsolescence into products, you know, making them to wear out. Well, nowadays, we expect things to be delivered quickly, but we know better than to expect them to last. 
Well, the United Kingdom, for example, generated 222 million tons of waste in 2018. That was almost four years ago. But a grassroots operation in Glasgow called Remade, and it was founded by a former environmental activist, by the way, uh, wants to alter that thinking. So what they do is they collect all of this used stuff, and they have technicians on hand to help people mend, repair, and reuse everything, everything that they have, from laptops to lamps, from jeans, slacks, jumpers, dresses, you name it, they'll fix it for a modest fee. Customers can also buy refurbished computers and other gadgets or go to workshops to learn how to repair and restore their own items. They tell us that in a throwaway world, this company Remade is a keeper. And yeah. this is the, 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 these stories are everywhere. There are numerous countries that are starting up movements for this. Um, it, it's really going to become a thing of the future. And that means I have to ask myself, what are manufacturers going to do? They'll probably be forced, number one, eventually, into making quality items that keep as they used to. You know, I still have a toaster that's 40 years old and it works just fine. That's older than a lot of our listeners. But you know, there was a time there there was a time when they made things and they they worked. Anybody who's collected antiques, such as perhaps an old meat grinder or goodness knows what, you can name anything that's two hundred years old, uh, still works fine. Put a little oil to it and it works great. So this is fairly new that things have not lasted long. They it's manufacturers who decided that hey, we can make more money if we can sell more stuff and We'll just fix it so they don't last too long. And everything we buy is made like that. And it's actually planned for. It's called functional obsolescence. They know they're doing it, and nobody's complained. People keep buying. Well, here's the resistance movement against that very thing. To make, remake things, to reuse things, eventually they'll have to get, get it, uh, give in and clean up their act and begin to make things that last. And the result will be we won't have to be buying things over and over again. I can tell you over the past decade, I've probably averaged two coffee pots a year. And I don't think I'm the only one. Coffee pots are famous to break down and throw out. So this is a trend away from these things uh, to get save the world of the garbage and save natural resources. I think it's wonderful. Um, in Romania, uh, th- th- Romania, like the Ukraine and other countries in that part of the world, have really difficult histories. These people have gone through so much. And in Romania specifically, there is a certain architect who grew up during this really rough time in Romania. And after decades of communist dictatorship, they had a bumpy transition to a free market society, but people were economically desperate. And when this boy was this man, or he was a boy then, when he was 16 in the mid-90s, he witnessed fleets of cars filled with antique furniture, ceramics, traditional costumes. Uh, They were leaving and being shipped out of the country to be sold in the West. He was outraged at the pillaging of his nation's heritage. And he and his brother began to collect or buy whatever valuable objects they could find. I mean, this is not unusual. During World War II, we saw that Europe lost much of its treasure as it was shipped out. That people had nothing They had to sell everything that they had. Well, this happened in Romania. This young man saw it. He knew it wasn't right. At a very young age, he started to collect things. Well, now he's really expanded his mission. He's turned it into his life's work. 
And just a few years ago, he founded something called the Ambulance for Monuments. It started with a truck that was loaded with tools that wandered all over the land of Romania, repairing neglected historical buildings and monuments with the help of volunteers. So now it's five years later. He has seven trucks, 500 volunteers, and has saved 60 traditional structures, including medieval churches, ancient windmills, and castles. There are sponsors of this, of course. One of them is Prince Charles Educational Charity, called the Princess Foundation, which is bankrolling the project. But local communities also donate food and housing to volunteers, and their governments are supplying construction materials. The end result is heritage is being rescued from oblivion. But also, there is now a renewed interest in Romania's history. People need their roots. They need a connection to their past. Well, his organization estimates that there are still about 600 monuments in Romania that need help, and he would love to see his efforts reproduced in other countries as well. Well, here's somebody who's not thinking about themselves. He knows his mission. He's doing it. It's beautiful. And I don't know how many of you ever watched or remember the Looney Tunes. This goes way, way back. Cartoons, clear back in the 60s and before sometimes went into the 70s, but there was a character called the Tasmanian Devil. He gave Bugs Bunny a hard time. <laughs> well, uh, that's all any, you know, most people nowadays think of the Tasmanian Devil. They think of the cartoon character because it was ubiquitous in American culture at the time. Now, there is a real-life Tasmanian Devil. It's an animal, and it's actually one of the world's most vulnerable marsupials. It was devastated by a facial tumor disease that wiped out 90% of the population in some areas of Tasmania, and they were declared an endangered species way back in 2008. Well, now Tasmanian devils are thriving on the Australian mainland for the first time in 3,000 years, thanks to the efforts of a conservation group called Aussie Ark. They say dozens of devils were introduced to a 400-hectare sanctuary in New South Wales last year. And this spring, the first generation of new baby joeys were born. Once widespread over the entire continent, prehistoric climate change combined with hunting by people and dingoes left Tasmania the only place where devils survived after 1000 B.C. This is an ancient animal. So Aussie Ark hopes to create a self-sustaining population of Tasmanian devils that can help rebalance the ecosystem in the face of invasive species. Something that we don't often think about is that every single species has a purpose in the greater whole. When we lose one, uh, there's a chain reaction. Other species suffer, and it does change the entire ecosystem. So putting them back where they belong and letting them grow and prosper restores the balance of the earth in that area. Great. How many people, how many of you (laughs) have had the frustration of maybe, I don't know, maybe you're going to a wedding, I don't know what you're doing, but you're dressed up. You have on your nice shoes, okay, and you step out on the city sidewalk. Oh, maybe it's a new pair of shoes. You really like your shoes. You step out of the car and, uh uh-oh, you stepped into a big pile of chewing gum. It's not easy to get off. And our habit of chewing gum is not without its toll on the environment. Did you know, I didn't, 
that most gum is made from synthetic polymers like plastic. And it's not oh. biodegradable. Don't swallow your gum, people. And as they say, that's why so much discarded gum seems to permanently stick to sidewalks. Well, to help tackle that problem, there have been some entrepreneurs that have created their own plastic-free alternative. It's called True Gum. It was launched in 2017, and it makes 400,000 pieces of plastic-free chewing gum a day in Copenhagen. Each piece of True Gum has a chicle base, a resin that Mayan and Aztec peoples were chewing hundreds of years ago. Now people in such countries as the Netherlands, Germany, and Belgium are, are, and Belgium are true gum chewers. So they say if this eco-friendly gum catches on, it could spell the end of gum-spotted sidewalks the world over. I didn't know gum had plastic in it. Did you, Ariel? No. No, I'm egg. shocked. No, you didn't? No, I'm I shocked. am too. I am too. I'm too. Well, there you have it. And you've all heard about the problem with wind turbines and birds. They tell us that's one of the negative effects of onshore wind farms is bird deaths. Well, a nine-year study at Norway's wind farm, uh, the name of the wind farm is Smola, uh, it's found that bird strikes can be cut up by, cut up, that sounds strange, can be eliminated by up to 70% by simply painting one blade of a wind turbine the color black. Scientists believe this reduces what they call motion smear, allowing birds to see the three rotating blades. The researchers tell us that further tests at other wind farms should be needed, but that's where they think it's going. Paint one uh, blade black, and the birds will find their way through it without being injured. I think that's pretty wow. significant. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, how are we doing on time? I have a couple of really cute stories, and I don't want to run over. Um, I'll share this one with you. Um, the art of conversation lives on. Well, in front of Barcelona's Arc de Triomphe, a 26-year-old sets up two fold-away chairs and puts up a sign with large letters that reads, Free Conversations. Anyone's welcome to stop, sit, and chat with him in Spanish, English, or Catalan about anything they like. The young man says the idea is to just talk freely for a while. Well, he's a 26-year-old writer and storyteller, and he says, we have lost the art of conversation. We live in a world where it's often easier to send a text message to someone from another country than to say good morning to our neighbors. Well, as he runs his little side, sidewalk boutique talking to people, he posts photos of himself and those who choose to chat, and he shares their reflections and sometimes their startling revelations. He said at times he feels like a therapist. He said you hear good, positive stories and some really tough ones too. A lot of people will tell you about a tricky episode in their life, maybe a heartbreak or a job loss. There's a bit of everything. <laughs> a 70-year-old Lithuanian woman even talked about the years she spent in a Russian concentration camp. Well, during the coronavirus situation, he took the conversation online. He set up a website called randompenpals.com. It's a site that invites users to get a quarantine pen pal in 10 seconds. He plans to publish a manifesto and aims to spread his initiative to other major cities around the world. Sit down and have a talk. Tell me what you're thinking and feeling. I'm listening. Mm. And here, I'll make this our last story for tonight. <clears throat> 
this is adorable. Um, gosh, it's one of those that you really kind of need a picture. So what I did was, as I'm going to read this to you, I left the website open so that I can read the photograph on the air to you about what, what this says. So let me share the story, and then I'll share with you the, sentence, the sentiments. In about two seconds, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, a second grade teacher created a writing assignment for her students that is helping local shelter animals find forever homes. The teacher asked her students at St. Michael's Episcopal School in Richmond, Virginia, to draw pictures of animals at the Richmond Animal Care and Control, or ACC, and then write letters from the perspectives of the animals themselves to try and help get them adopted. She was telling the children to be mouthpieces for the animals, write it down, how do the dogs and cats feel, why should anybody adopt me? Well, the class, she said, was working on persuasive writing, and they wrote pieces as, as if they were speaking on behalf of the shelter dog trying to get adopted. Each student was assigned a dog or cat from the shelter and then was briefed on the background and temperament of the animal. Then they put the written letters and pictures. That's the part I can't share with you. The children wrote, uh, uh, drew adorable pictures of these animals along with a note at the bottom. And those pictures and letters were hung on the outside of each animal's kennel. Well, she said, uh, this classroom project collaboration allowed me to combine my two greatest passions, children's literature, literacy and helping animals in need. She said, I am so proud to see my students rise to the occasion and write amazing persuasive paragraphs through the eyes of one of their dogs. So now I'm going to read to you these notes. So bear with me. See. Okay, I'll start here. And this is a picture with a blue sky and a sun, a green meadow, and a little doggy sitting there. The child wrote, Hi, my name is Yosemite. I am a boy. I like the animal shelter, but you would be best. If you're looking for a pet, please, please, please take me home. It would really make my day if you adopted me. I love cuddles. Kisses and extra love. I'm begging you, please adopt me. Uh -huh. Letter number two. Hi, I am Gail Weathers. I would like a home so much. I have a fine life here, but I would like my own dog bed a lot. I would like a toy and a big yard. I would like to be the only pet in the home. Third letter. Hi, my name is Sleigh Ride. Do you want to adopt me? You can train me if you want. Can you put a heart on my collar? I am a girl. Who are you? You can snuggle with me. I promise that I will be a good dog. You can even sleep with me if you want. I love going on walks and playing outside. I am a medium-sized dog. I am getting bored at this place. Would you love me forever? Love a cute puppy. Aww. And finally... Hello, my name is Sunday Special. I would love to be adopted. If you do adopt me, I hope I will brighten up your Sundays like the sun. You'll be my Sunday Special, and I hope I'll be yours. <laughs> ah, from the beautiful heart of a child. Eight animals were quickly adopted after their stories were written and read. Oh, how sweet. How sweet. That's great. There is sweetness and beauty and wonder and love 
all around us. It is wonderful to be alive. Each day is a gift. From my heart to each one of you, much love, everybody. Have a beautiful couple of weeks, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks, Ariel. Oh, thank you so much. Great stories tonight. We really appreciate it. So you'll talk to you in two weeks. Sure. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, uh, now we are going to get Lavendar and our special guest, Cheryl Costa. Let me get your mics open. Okay. Are you all ready to go? Yep. I'm ready. Okay. Take it away. So, Cheryl, are you there? Yep. Well, uh, first of all, I wanted to comment on a book that you had uh, had written earlier called UFO Sighting Death Reference Book, of which you sent to me, and I really love this book. And I realized that when I saw your picture, I went, oh, that's right. She wrote that other wonderful um, reference book. So I wanted to ask you, have you been able to get it to all of the people in Congress or to different libraries? What's happening with this wonderful UFO desk reference book? Okay, what we uh, well, we had to get it to certain people. Obviously, um, there's a uh, lobbyist in, in D.C. A guy by the name of Steve Bassett, and uh, we made sure he got a few copies to, to use as necessary. And the other thing we did was this past summer. Uh, we took a copy of the desk reference, two copies, and I generated uh, – uh, our database now can go down to the zip code level, okay, so for any state. So um, the head of the Senate Select Intel Committee at that time was uh, Senator Rubio, and he had a counterpart in the House as well who was a, a New York State representative. And um, I generated – a printout of their each of their states sightings for 20 years right down to the zip code level which zip codes are a big deal with politicians and uh, in wow. both cases in both cases they were about an inch and a half thick along with my book it was about a five pound package both of them got from us and we had a very terse cover letter uh, only about half a page we basically gave them the high level executive summary of how many sightings there were in the United States in the last 20 years, sighting reports rather, and said, hey, if you guys decide to have congressional hearings, we are the civilian experts on the statistics. Please feel free to invite us. So did they invite you? They haven't. Uh, COVID has has tied up everything um, uh, as okay. far as, you know, we're, we're just yeah. – getting out of that, so to speak, and they haven't gotten around to it. The the peop, the, the usual suspects in D.C. who are doing the lobby work, uh, they um, say it is it's in a holding pattern right now, but it's going to it's going to come out sooner or later. They're going to do something. It's just right now there's too much too much other business to deal with. Um, and that's pretty much where it says. Now, the book you got was bright fuchsia pink, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. A quick quick story on that. In uh, 2019, of course, we didn't know COVID was coming. Uh, the usual suspects, these are our lobby people down there, uh, they reached out to us and said, uh, hey, you ladies are, wrote the only book of statistics ever published on UFOs. And we said, yeah, okay. And they said, well, 
Are, would you be prepared to testify before Congress? Because Senator, at that time, Senator Rubio was trying to get a bill um, tagged onto something that would pass that would call for that sort of thing and, and being more square with the American people. And we said, yeah, sure, we, we, could, we could do that if necessary. Okay, now, please understand, Linda and I both were contractors to the government, and you spend your entire uh, career doing your best not to be called in front of Congress, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we said, yeah, sure. So that, after we got off the phone, we sat there and thought about this. And we were getting ready to compile the 20, uh, the 20, uh, 2001 to 2020 version. This is in the middle of 19. We had to wait until 2020 was over with. And it dawned on us, okay, if we end up in front of Congress and there's going to be congressmen or senators up there thumbing through papers and things, we want people to know, one, that's our book they're thumbing through, and two, uh, is women UFO researchers. We wanted people to know it was women who produced this book. Okay, so we decided to make it bright fuchsia, something you can flag in an aircraft with. <laughs> and so it's adoringly being called the Pink Book. So Project Pink there was book. the Air Force had Project Blue Book. We have Project Pink Book. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is well. I want you to know that um, this is such a reference book. Everyone should have one of these if they're really interested in. In, in the discovery of, of the truth about the different states that have more UFO sightings than others. And, and as I was going through it, I went, you know, most of these things happen, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I noticed. Uh, Especially actually, actually, the peak time is between 8.30 at night and 10.30 at night. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I noticed here in Arkansas it was 3 a.m. That's ah, the one I was that, looking for. Okay, Arkansas, there's a special story there. There's a there's a peak there's a peak after after midnight it, it goes the sightings fall off steeply and there's a there's a a bump at five o'clock in the morning that we we attribute that to early morning dog walkers that first smoke take going outside brushing the snow off the car that kind of thing okay but okay. Arkansas had a bump at um, three o'clock in the morning then I was presenting down at the uh, 2019 uh, uh, Ozarks UFO conference, Ozark Mountain UFO conference. And I had about 12 men come up to me afterwards. I told them I didn't know what that 3 a.m. peak was about. And they came up to me, and all 12 of these guys said, well, we're chicken farmers. We raise a lot of chickens here in Arkansas, and that's when we prep our birds to go to market. Oh, well, so, there's your so 3 o'clock. Okay. They're outside, <laughs> and so you got to have be outside to have this availability to see this stuff. Um, and we we found like in uh, we found like in Vegas um, there was a bump at one, two, and four. And I sh- I sent a copy of this out to the uh, MUFON investigator out there, and she called me up and says, "Hey, that's when the clubs and the shows let out." So yeah, this is about leisure time when you're outside, you know that type of thing. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, bravo, bravo, bravo. Thank you to Thank you, you and your partner for doing this book because. I think this is going to be a major key when everything gets turned loose here pretty soon. I think that your this reference book is is the fact book. You know, you can't argue with facts when they're in black and white the way you've presented them. Numbers Although don't some, lie, as they say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's not really why we invited you this time on the show. Yes. So let's get let's get to the new book that you've written. Um, 
The Magical Musings of a Rogue Witch. I love this title so much. <laughs> it makes me laugh to know that you've probably gone the extra mile to really know about this. <laughs> For someone to, to say that you're a rogue witch, that you've got my vote already. <laughs> the, the original, the, the the working title we had originally with the first manuscript was uh, The Magical Ravings of a, of a, a Mad Witch. And... Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And my my publisher sat me down and said, look, people are going to think you're stark and loony and you've written a very sensible book here. So can we do something different? So we came up with this one of uh, the fact that I, I've always cut my own path in craft. And uh, so th- that's how come we came up with the one of uh, Magical Musings of a Rogue Witch, somebody who is always a bit of a maverick. Well, the thing that I, that I love about this book is that it um, – point you in the direction of being able to really step into the art of bending reality. Yeah. And I think that I think that is the the key to your book is is uh at least telling people that that this is a reality that you can bend a sp- uh, sp- space and time. And that is the mag- that is the machine code that you write about in your book. So tell us a little bit more about how you discovered this. Well, okay. Um the I think the, the the first part of it is is that I learned a long time ago that term bending reality uh, was in Starhawk's 1982 book uh, Spiral Dance, and uh, that that image and that mindset always stayed with me. But the problem for me was when I got when uh, as I was starting as I was teaching. Uh, it, I always felt that we were teaching magic backwards. Uh, it, it always seemed people were starting out with spell casting, especially if they were in a circle or had somebody teaching them or something like this. And there were a lot of people you bumped into and you asked them if they did divination and they, oh, I don't monkey with that. Okay. And my argument down the line had, uh, from for about the last 20 years um, had been uh, – you have to really develop a good connection with your younger self to make the communi- nonverbal communication to make it all happen with the higher self. And uh, so I started teaching it the other way around, teaching a divination process to get there and meditation and quieting the mind, which is key to this stuff is you have to quiet. I mean, People ask me, well, wait a minute, we, we quiet our mind. I said, yeah, but witches for generations have been doing it by crystal balls or staring into a, a, a candle, candle magic, whatever, to kind of numb their consciousness down a bit to do this. And I say, well, I, we've got modern techniques for meditation that can put you in the zone very quickly. So why not use the modern techniques? Pretty much my approach. Uh, the other aspect of it is is that, uh, you know, I've had people push back, but, oh, we want the old ways. I said, wait a minute, does that necessarily mean the old ways are always the best? I said, uh, a Model T Ford and I got a 2022 Maserati sitting here. Which one is better? You know, <laughs> so that's kind of how we got there. Wow, wow. So... Tell us a little bit about your early life, because I'm sure that you were you were born with very awake consciousness. Can you tell us anything at all about some of your earlier life or things that you've experienced that you think our audience would like to hear? Well, okay, uh, not that everybody has to be like this, believe me. Um, uh, clairvoyance runs down the maternal side of my family, 
and most of my cousins that had the gift uh, and my brother and sister, they, they ignored it, buried it, ran away from it. Okay. It was only like two or three of us that embraced it. Okay. And that was, that was the big deal. We, we embraced it. So I, I was forced to go to Catholic school as a kid because my mother was a convert, so to speak. So they required that the kid go to school and uh, my brother and sister went to, went to, um, went to uh, public school because after the experience of what I went through and uh, the, the nuns wouldn't come through me with a 10 foot, wouldn't touch me with a 10 foot pole after they figured out it was clairvoyant. And uh, I saw the world very differently. And that was, that was, for me was an issue. I had a grandmother who was a spiritualist church person um, high up in their local chapter of it. And so I was exposed to that stuff as a kid, five, six, seven years old, that type of thing. So um, I always had a, a much more open view of reality uh, as, as they taught. Now, much later on, okay, uh, see, I left Catholic school uh, in sixth grade. I left Catholicism when I was 17. I went in the service right out, the Air Force right out of, right out of um, high school. And I wasn't a Catholic anymore at that point. And I went to, uh, when I was in the Air Force, and down in Texas for about a year, I went to I, everybody in the barracks. I went to church with everybody. I wanted to hear what everybody had. I went to more tent revivals, more uh, river baptisms than you can shake a stick at. Went to all the Mormon dinners and watched all the movies that, from the Mormon missionaries. Okay, I went with everybody. Nothing sang to me. I later was in Vietnam. And when I was in Vietnam, some Native, some Native American guys I, I worked with um, pointed out two things to me. One, um, uh, this was Boy Cheryl in the Air Force. Uh, and they looked at me and they said, um, you're two souls. I said, what's that? And they said, don't worry, Coyote will tell you all about it someday. And uh, that, that monkey call, uh, crawled up on my back sometime later. But the bottom line was they also <laughs> noticed that I had, a, I, had a, I had a different sight on things. And um, uh, so people have always noticed that I saw the world differently. And uh, so when I got in the Navy, about, uh, about six, seven years later, I got in the Navy. Uh, I wasn't done doing what I was doing. The only reason I got out of the Air Force is my, my hometown got wiped out in a flood in 1972, or Agnes Hurricane. So I got out to help my family get, get back on their feet, and then I went, I went back in the service. And I got into a Navy program. It was two years worth of school. And when I got out onto a nuclear submarine, uh, after they spent two years training me in some very special work, um, uh, I met a guy. He had a pentacle hanging around his neck, and I asked him, "Gee, are you a Satanist?" And he came down my throat. No, I'm Wiccan. <laughs> so um, we got to be friends, and he gave me things to read. And the Wicca thing that I was reading from the early Gardnerian work was resonating with me. But I was a solitaire for the next number of years. This is in the mid '70s, and uh, uh, and then about '82, uh, a gal buddy of mine who I'd met at, a, pig, at a, a psychic fair, gave me a copy of Spiral Dance by Starhawk. And it opened up another view, the, the, the goddess uh, uh, worship aspect of this. And um, that's pretty much how I got to be a witch. 
And then it just grew from there. Now, in the, and I was very much the mother priestess through the late 80s and uh, uh, 90s. And then, uh, <laughs> funny thing, I had a vision, I was invited to a shamanic thing out in the desert in 94 and got my spiritual butt handed to me on a platter, as they say. And um, uh, I came back, barely knew my own name when I came back from New Mexico. And uh, every, my name in those days, my, my craft name was Cassandra, Lady Cassandra. And the goofy thing about all of this was that um, no, about the only people who called me Cheryl was the IRS and my boss at my corporate job. And when I came back, I would call people up and say, hi, this is Cheryl. And everybody knew something was wrong. Okay. And so that had an effect on me. Uh, it led to me being taken to a Buddhist monastery. And at the Buddhist monastery, um, uh, a Buddhist, the short story of Buddhist Lama was going through a, crowd, a, a handshaking line of about 150 people. And he got to me, shook hands with me, went into a European handshake with me with two hands and got into my face and looked into my eyes and said, I know you. That's a big deal with Tibetan lamas and so i spent the next seven years in buddhist monastic life and that taught me another view and the funny thing was there were three of us three three waking priestesses that were buddhist nuns there which was interesting and the lamas were very respectful of us because uh they quite literally when we were getting our our ordination robes uh and, and being ordained um the the lama that came from India sat up there and through a translator said, why do three daughters of the goddess want to become Buddhist nuns? And we gave him a very intriguing answer. And he said, you, and basically what it amounted to, you have compassion for the gods. You deserve to be Buddhist nuns. <laughs> and that was the context of it. And uh, that's how I got through that. And then, seven years in that and then one day I went to my Lama and I told him what I had been on a singular assignment uh, they sent me someplace to open a center for them and they were supposed to send another monastic but nobody would come to where I was because it was up in, up in New York State and that's the frozen north as people say and nobody would come up there to help me so um, I was doing the whole thing by myself. And one day I went to my Lama and I told him I'd had a realization. I explained to him what the realization was and we talked it out. And he said, what has this taught you? I said, well, if I'm correct, I'm no longer qualified to be a Buddhist nun. Because you can evolve out of that. And I did. So he told me, he said, why don't you go back to the pagan community don't try and convert anybody, but share the things they need to know. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've done. And then I, I came back. And there's a lot of, I don't want to call it Buddhist thought in my book, but there's a lot of uh, the way I explain magical environment. I put the, law, the components that generally is not talked about in like something like Wicca. Uh, I put those Buddhist components in that kind of fill in the gaps. So, so let me let me ask you, Cheryl. Um, in in your work, in the in, in your experiences through life, which sounds like to me you've had a lot of high strangeness happen to you. Oh yeah. Um, 
Can you can you give us a little insight to maybe some of the experiences that you've had with elementals, with the rock people, the tree people, the cloud people, the different elementals of fire and, and wind and water? Are there are there things that you could share with us? Because I know that you've had probably a lot of experiences in this area, have you not? Yes, yes. Um, I, I think the only way I can really ex- really say it is. Um, I can be in the woods alone, but I am never alone. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, I am never alone. Um, and no matter where I am, I am never alone. Um, the clairvoyant side, it, it doesn't matter if it is passed on spirits. It doesn't matter if it's the, it, the nature spirits out here. Um, uh, I, in fact, that was one of the goofy things. Uh, there was one time we were at a pagan fest. This is all about 1991 or 92. It was one of those El Nino years when it seemed like somebody turned on a faucet and all it did was rain. And we were at a... Uh, at, at this conference and uh, uh, we were, ta- <laughs> it was a campground. So uh, sky clad was perfectly okay. Okay. And a couple of the kids came to me and they said, um, uh, the showers aren't working. They said, well, let's just take a shower out in the rain. And I said, go get a bowl from the camp stuff. Our, our, this was our cooking stuff. Go get a couple of big bowls and let them fill up with water. So we stepped out in the pouring rain, sat there and lathered up real good. I said, save your hair till last so we lathered up, let the rain rain wash everything off, and then we started lathering up the hair, and that's when it stopped raining, because the rain divas have a sense of humor. <laughs> and we had these bowls of water to rinse all this, the soap out of our hair. Uh, that's one of the best ones I can tell you about this. Um, we have a running, I don't want to call it a running joke, uh, my spouse is a hedge witch, and um, uh, we go to places, and nine times out of ten, uh, there's the place is completely parked out. But parking fairies are always with me because for some reason I always manage to get a prime parking place. Okay, so there's there's forces working around you. If you're friendly with them, they work with you. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, we, I find that too. I do find that. When you're in the the, the the stride of your of your magic, that other magics shows up to lead the way. Yeah, I can see that. Constantly. Well, you know, there's one thing. Ask, Go, well, let me, let me you, give you one more quick okay. story. Um, okay. The monks, Buddhist monks and nuns weren't much better than people I dealt with in the, uh, this, these are Americans, they were all probably Presbyterians, Jews, or Baptists 20 years before. Okay, you have to keep that in mind, though now they're, they were Buddhist, okay? And they didn't know what to make of me, and they didn't know what to make one of the other wicked priestesses. And um, so... One night, they were, there was this big thing to do a, a very big fire puja. This is a fire offering where you're going to be offering like three or $400 worth of grains into the fire pit with, you know, uh, uh, cedar wood being burned with it to feed, the, feed the, um, the ghosts and things, okay? And they couldn't get a fire started because it was pouring down rain. This was that El Nino season uh, again, okay? And one of the elder nuns went up and told the visiting Lama, what the deal was, and he said, my Buddhist name at that time was, uh, my Buddhist name is Tashi, 
So Ani means nun or auntie. So they said, go, go get Ani Tashi. She knows how to deal with the, the weather spirits. She came and, came and got me. I told her what I needed. She got me a couple bowls of rice. We borrowed one of the big horns out of the temple, one of those big Tibetan horns. And we went out in the front yard, and she had, she had a big umbrella over both of us. I went through a, a, a gyration of things, made the offering of the rice, blew the horn a few times, and the rain stopped over the temple. Okay, the sky opened up over the temple, blue sky, pouring every place else. And 20 minutes later, it closed up. By that time, they had a nice roaring fire going outside in the big fire pit. I mean, a huge fire, okay? The biggest mistake I ever made, um, never tell the weather spirits. And when, and when our fire is going, feel free to do as you like. Should have, <laughs> you should dismiss Never tell them that. We got involved in our, our the big fire puja ceremony and everything. And of course, inside as a Buddhist nun, I was like the the, the fifth ranking down from the person who's actually up there waving the uh, waving the incense around. Okay, I'm just one of the the, the flunkies. Okay, and um, and the storm started up really bad. It started getting lightning, and the other wicked priestess was next to me and. We started having purple lightning and green lightning and um, yellow lightning. And she leaned into me and said, what did you do? <laughs> and the next morning I got a phone call from a, a Cherokee medicine guy that I know I, who's a, a lawyer and represented the native tribes in federal court because everything, everything that had to deal with the court always had to be with the Native Americans had to be dealt with at a federal level. And he called me up the next morning, Big Bear, and he called me up. So, were you out in Poolsville last night? Yeah. Did you do weather magic? Yeah. What did you do? You know, <laughs> so that gives you an idea that, you know, there are even an experienced person. At that point, I had over 20 years under my, 25 years under my belt. And you, you're always still a student, you know, that type of thing. And I interrupted you and I didn't mean to. I, I don't even remember what I was going to say. But oh, I'm sorry. I, 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 oh, I do know. I wanted to ask you if you have tuned in to past lives where you've worked with magic, where you've been with the Druids, or you've been with the goddesses, or in yes. Greece and different places. Are those some of your memories? Uh, okay. I thought I could put my finger on through normal craft path. Okay. Um but I did, uh, when I first met that Lama who shook hands with me and said, I know you, uh, the other monks told me I should go in and visit him. So I, I, they gave me this like a 15 minute appointment to go in and see him. I walked in with this notebook because I had come back from New Mexico and I, I had been scribbling in it at two or three o'clock in the morning for two years. Right? And he looks at, and he waves at me. I, I mean, they got me down on the floor bowing to the guy and he said, get up, get sit in a chair. You know, so I'm sitting there in this lazy boy and he says, um, so what were you raised? I said, well, I was raised Roman Catholic. Oh, still Roman Catholic? I said, no, no, I've been running with the Wicca shamans for the last 20, 20 years. Oh, still doing the yogi stuff, huh? I said, do you mean I've done all this before? Are you good at it? I said, yeah, I'm really good at it. He said, you think you learned it all in one lifetime? That pretty much says it all. <laughs> uh, three <laughs> months later, me and the other wicked priestess were ordained as uh, Tibetan yogis. 
because yeah. the Orthodox Tibetan tradition has both a traditional Buddhist path and they also, the shamans of Tibet were the first ones converted to Buddhism. So they also have a, 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 a tantric or um, what I'm going to call a magical path as well. Okay. Oh, goodness. You've had such an exciting life, I can tell. And in your book, $4, you've... I can still buy a cup of coffee at, at, at Starbucks. Okay. All right. So tell us a little bit more about this book and why people should um, uh, get a copy of it. What would be the 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 headline that you'd want them to, to know about this book? Well, most books that are out there, they get very verbose. This book's only got 140 pages in it. It's very small. Okay, but what I did was I went right to the non-secretarian juggler vein and taught basically the magical physics. You know, the, the, uh, starting out with the idea that reality is pliable and bendable. Okay, and then we go from there and I do everything in non-secretarian terms. In fact, my goddess basically says, stop asking us for crap. You've got the same spark of life we've got. Do it yourself. Yeah, I get that. That's I get that. that, I'm getting that right from the lips of ISIS on this on this thing. So, um, uh, and and, you know, that's another thing people don't understand about pagan pagan tradition is that we're not necessarily God fearing. We have a tendency to have that parent child relationship with our God deities, you know. And I find myself explaining that to non pagans a lot. Uh, Yeah, very interesting concept. Very important. Very important. They, well, I'm, I'm, I know we're I'm out of time, what, probably. Yes, no, I, what, I would like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle. Please. She does have a switchboard, and if there's anyone that would like to um, um, speak to you, uh, I'm sure that that they'll be able to uh, on, on your end, Arielle. So back to you, okay. Arielle. And Cheryl, Cheryl, anytime you want to come on our show and announce anything, especially you. when especially when you get close to to making things happen in Washington D.C., come on, let us know about it so that we can we can always hold the point for what you're doing. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that a great deal. Okay. Okay. Back to you, Ariel. Okay. Okay. Well, um, you continue where where we where we left off um, about how you you know you've kind of gathered from all different views. And so what you what you put together in this book is is drawing on all of your experiences and putting it in a way that uh like you said you're going you're going right for the meat <laughs> and and uh, so can we do just uh, talk about that a little bit more Sure sure um uh okay first thing I want to qualify to your audience because I have wicked roots and I, and I I retired formally as a wicked priestess in December of 20 uh, 21. Okay. Oh, 20. I'm sorry. 2020. Um, and a lot of people think immediately for, if they don't know anything about wicked, they think you, you're, we're already a uh, Wiccans are automatically wired into some particular deity. You pretty much have the flexibility of whoever you, you want to venerate, whoever you want to. Okay. In the wicked tradition, though, it, it appears by looking at a lot of the books, it seems to be mostly Greek pantheon, that kind of thing. Um, I am a priestess of the goddess Isis. I believe in service, sacrifice, compassion, and love unto all things. And that's what I am about. And that also sort of dictates my moral code. 
Um, okay. The book primarily is about the idea of working with the machine code of reality, turning thought into form. Buddhist tradition teaches emptiness and form. Form is not, none other than emptiness. Emptiness is none other than form. And in this case, thought is none other than form. Form is none other than thought. Okay? And basically, all magical practices that you'll read about, whether you're doing candle magic, you pick the, the way you're doing it. It is about numbing down your conscious mind, getting yourself into the zone, sort of a meditative zone, whether you're doing it drumming circles, whatever, getting yourself in this meditative zone and hopefully projecting a nonverbal cue to your younger self, that, that spark of life you have, which is connected to the force, connected to the dark womb, she who is everything, and plugs, plugs you into that and do a, a, a manifestation. Okay. Now, a lot of people think we wiggle our nose and supper appears, you know, on TV, but you think that. <laughs> and I, I have the hardest time explaining to people, no, it doesn't work that way. We nudge things. We nudge reality. We bend it a little bit. And, um, uh, and a lot of people think you have to do these big, over-the-top rituals. And I tell them the best magic is as gentle as a baby's breath. Okay? You don't need to kick everything. You just need to whisper to it to make it happen. But be focused and clear of mind. And in our Western culture, that is very difficult. You can't walk into a restaurant anymore without there being four screens blaring some sports event. Right. You, know, you got uh, you got ninety different distractions coming in over a phone, and and you look at your phone. Yet people are bowing their heads to it like it's a deity eighty times a day. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in the West, we have a problem with our too much chatter in our mind, and you cannot work effective magic unless you learn to quiet. And I teach my students to start at meditating two minutes a day for a couple of months, and then we maybe edge it up to five minutes a day. And ultimately, over the course of six to eight months, I'd like them to be able to do five minutes three times a day. And that's the key, because once you can quiet the mind, then you can visualize, and then after that, it's just a matter of turning your thought into form. So by by going through this 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 pattern of, you know, two minutes a day and then, you know, edging it up and edging it up. That's just the training before you can do anything. You have to be able to do that. Is that? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And you know, something that's the hardest part of the magic, because what happens when you start doing, being alone with your thoughts, with all the weird stuff we have chattering around in our subconscious, all these sort of, ghosts in our consciousness come up in front of us and it distracts us. Oh my God, my boss yelling at me. Oh, my fifth grade teacher yelling at me. Oh, and this stuff just keeps coming up and people tell me, Oh, it's just too hard. And you just have to let those, I call them meditative ghosts. They're not really ghosts, but meditative ghosts just go through you. They're vapor, they're dreams. Just let them evaporate. Just, just stand your ground. Don't fight it. Just let it go. They taught me that in the monastery. Okay. Now, do you have to spend hours and hours in a temple someplace? No, I tell people the two minutes, you know, if you can't make time for yourself, do it during your lunch hour. You know, close the office door and 
give yourself two minutes, hit the timer on your watch or something like that, and 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 do it. Uh, if you can't even carve the time out that way, do it two minutes on the throne during uh, during your lunch break in the restroom if you have yeah. to. Okay, just be in a quiet place and just quiet your mind and be one with everything for that period of time, and then gradually edge it up. Now, a lot of people say, "Well, I can do twenty minutes." You might be able to close your eyes for 20 minutes, but I can't guarantee you're meditating for 20 minutes, okay, because there's a lot to being alone with your thoughts and dealing with all this crap that comes up. You have to gradually weed it out in these two to three minute up to five minute level of meditation. And thereafter, once you've got, you can get through three, four or five minutes worth of meditation without being burdened with all the, all the, the subconscious chatter then you can do longer periods, but even in the monastery, I never mastered more than 45 or 50 minutes. These days, the longer a monastic, I do five minutes in the morning, five minutes around lunchtime, and five minutes before I go to bed. That keeps me on a pretty even keel. I've also eliminated a lot of things that distract me. You know, my, I don't live on my phone. I have one, but I don't live on it like everybody else does. Yeah, me either. It, you know, because there is so much coming through the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, frequency uh, manipulation, let's call it that. Yeah, and all it's that. Piggy, it's piggybacked on your conversation. And I often wonder, you know, I mean, what about if you're living in an area where there are cell phone towers, if if people are... are arguing with each other and they're really, really mad and all those bits of information are going through your body whether you're on the phone or not, that's got to have some effect that, yes. that people just they can't track it. I agree. I agree. You know? uh, Why do I feel mad much, all of this? Too, too, much, too much electromagnetic radiation out there for my taste. And, yeah, I mean, I, just... I used to be a ham radio operator, and would you believe I retired all my ham radio gear over the last couple of years, and, and I, gave, I gave my license back to the federal government. I don't do ham radio anymore. I don't need to be immersing myself in RF radiation. Right, right. And those are just things that are, are um, taking your, your focus and, and your, your ability to, be, to just, just be still. Yes, yes. I think the biggest thing I communicate in the book is the idea of being, see, our Western culture, particularly Christian Judeo culture, has you think we're all separate from deity. Right. And uh, to use Star Wars analogy, we are part of the force. Our life force is part of the life life force all through the universe, everywhere, every when. And I tell people, you know, you don't need to be sending. And I know lots of people want to send spells and do a whammy on somebody they don't like. And I tell them, hey, don't monkey with that. It's not worth your trouble. They're not worth the trouble. Offer making offerings of great abundance for everywhere, every when, because there is blowback in magic. People tell you on online, oh, there's no such thing, but they're trying usually trying to trying those same people are usually trying to sell you a piece of black magic as well. It's a $4 billion industry. And I tell people, you make generous offerings to the universe for the benefit of all beings everywhere, every when, and the blowback is very positive for you. 
Okay. And right. Well, and be... I mean, go ahead. Just I, whenever you interfere with someone else's free will, that's that's going to come back to you, you know. And if you try to manipulate beyond your right, you know, that's that's going to have a price tag Agreed. on it. Agree. Yeah. Agreed. And it may be another lifetime when you when the bill comes in. Yeah, you know, that's, it's like, that's what they oh, don't get. Did, yeah, yeah. Why did this happen to me? It's like, they well, think it's don't like you remember a hundred years ago? They're going to bite you next week. They think get it's right. going to bite you next week, and they don't realize that you know you might the result of something they just did is going to bite them in the next lifetime or two lifetimes from now. You know, you, we see these stories all the time where somebody's driving across some big expansive bridge over a river and a, a span falls away. Oh, why did bad things happen to good people? That's why. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, your your karmic bank account, it carries over. It doesn't get closed out. When you start a new life, you bring all that forward. So, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly not interfering it. and always working for the good of all. Um, you know, do no harm. Exactly. That's got to be the, the basic. I, I go a step further with it. Um, in my book, I said, you know, there are a lot of people that will say, well, I'm not wicked. I don't have to do that do no harm thing. Okay. And uh, I, ha- I impart in the book, uh, quite literally, I says, you know, there's another piece of wisdom that I garnered in childhood and it didn't come from my Catholic teachers. It came from Marvel comics and the words of the late Stan Lee. Um, you have a great, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, do the, do the, the responsibility to do good things. If you've got the ability to do it, do good things. You have a responsibility to do so. And, uh, that's what I, I really try to impart to people is I'm not trying to be a goody two-shoes here, but there's enough hurt and want in the world that we should be doing our best to put something positive back into it. Stand, hold a line against the darkness, as they say. Right. Well, you, by turning your own light up, you are vanquishing darkness because the darkness is just the absence of the light. So well, yes. the more the more we can turn our light up, which means being kinder, more compassionate, not judging, not not manipulating, and you know doing all those the uh, you know negative things um, that that just adds to the collective light, which vanquishes the dark because the dark just hasn't it it hasn't it hadn't been exposed to the light yet. Thank you, thank you. You're dead on it. Um, when I talked, when I, and also in the book to some degree, I, I explained the idea of connecting to, uh, again, use a Star Wars term, the term the force, okay? Um, right. I was, I, was, I was hesitant to say it the way I really wanted to say it, uh, thinking it might turn people off. So I, I kept it very neutral. If I had said it the way I wanted to say it, it would have been, I am she who is black. I am she who is white. I am she who is nothing. I am she who is all things. I am she who is pregnant with universes. I am she. She is within me. She and I are one. Well, that's beautiful. And I learned 
that sort of thing that the universe is at the deeper I got into my meditations. I mean, I always expected God and goddess kind of attitude uh, and the, the celebration of the great goddess, but it wasn't until I was in deeper meditation retreats in my Buddhist life, my monastic life, that I realized uh, the great consciousness, the force is feminine and uh, and uh, all other things that we might attribute to it are just as she is everything anyway. So, but it is fundamentally feminine. And uh, so that that's just kind of how I wanted to say it. But uh, I had a test version of it, and one of the editors pushed back, pushed back, and said I might turn off an awful lot of people by by claiming it's not a balance of both. Okay, and that was the well, only. That right. But the other than other than grammar edits and things, that was the only thing that I adjusted a bit. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah I guess it's something they call politically correct, but um, yes. you know, certainly um, people can read between the lines. Well, um, I've got a, a comment from sure. our uh, our producer, uh, one of our producers, Fiona. And uh, I want to say hey to Jada, and I hope you had a happy birthday last week. So uh, you're going to talk to Fiona. Let me open up your mic, sweetie. Go ahead, Fiona, please. Okay. All right, Fiona, you're on. Hi, Carol. Hi. Hi, Ariel. Um, So what I just heard you say was a very, very good about polarity. And if you could just clarify for me and for our listeners, that polarity isn't for witches, all light or all dark. Polarity is a middle ground where we stay balanced, and I feel, um, you know, I feel as if a dry ice can burn you and heat can burn you, and so everything is a polarity of balance rather than a one way or another. Could you just extrapolate a little bit about polarity for me? Okay. As uh, somebody who was raised as a boy person, um, Mm -hmm. polarity was a very uh, awkward thing for me because I I felt it wasn't so much my drives as much as how I identified, okay, and uh, my connection to and the femininity and you know people say well you know i had a lot of people uh particularly men saying well uh, uh, join the service it'll make a man out of you you know go to war it'll make a man out of you i volunteered for vietnam okay and um it was my feminine instincts that got me out of there alive and uh i don't say that to an awful lot of people but that was the case um polarity is is reality but ultimately, like I said, she is all things. She is everything. But she is feminine. The, God, the, the, the major for, the force is feminine in nature if you listen to it. Okay? And you have to quiet yourself and feel it and understand it. Um, I think the only reason uh, there was... I, the, 
Yeah, I hate to go here, but the, you know the our whole history, feminine people like Mary, Jesus's mother, they were magical workers, okay, and they were part of a society of 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 women who could manifest the forces by weaving them, okay, and if she her virgin birth was a result of a magical weaving. And there's documentation out there about this. And so you have a history where the men had to be in, felt they needed to be in charge. So they did everything they could, to, either to kill off all the enlightened women and to breed the rest of the women that came after that to pure timidity. And I'm quoting, I'm quoting Amelia Earhart right there. Women have been bred for timidity for generations but we are the women are the stronger when you really boil it down to that we're, we're made to feel like we have to protect the women they aren't actually much more fierce than people give them credit for okay uh, men may have the brute strength but women are far stronger in other ways so um as as they say with feminine uh, with uh, with uh, childbirth you know uh, most men probably would never survive it <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I've held a lot of women's hands in in, uh, in childbirth, okay, and as a clergy person, and uh, I, I, I I really truly thought my hand would be broken by the end of it. <laughs> so, but the bottom line is, if there is balance in the universe, okay, there is a balance. and it's important to keep that balance. It's important to keep it both in the universe in our society, and also within ourselves. And everything in our society seems geared up to throw that balance off. And that's one of the insidious parts about all of this. Um, I, think, I think Fiona had to call back in. Okay. okay yeah. yeah, I yeah. Sorry about okay. that. Oh, did you? Okay, so... Um... All right, that was weird. But anyway, uh, so my question is more to the fact that a lot of people associate the light with good and the darkness with bad. And we've just come up upon Imolg where we have in the darkness the seeds germinating the new light. A new life that does reach for the light, and there's a very much of a balance there. Yes. So. A lot of times people say, oh, only the light, only the light, only the light. And um, I just have an issue with that. I, I feel like people need to realize that a lot happens in the darkness that germinates the food that feeds them even. That's um, what I – can you I would extrapolate agree. on that? I would agree. Um you know, we never we never dreamed in a gazillion years there would be life at the bottom of the ocean in all that dark by volcanic vents and 800 degree water. Mm-hmm. We never dreamed mm-hmm. there was there life. Uh, it's a still a line from Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. You know, yes. and and uh, the bottom is that too many people say, "Oh, it's got to be light. It's got to be light." You know, no. Yeah, it's exactly. Gray. Okay, the, the balance is gray. Okay, mm-hmm. and only when you get out of balance is there sometimes a problem. It's okay to have all light, but like you said, you have to have the dark for the germination. Uh, you have to have mm-hmm. dark for some uh, in order for think about this for the nocturnal animals. 
Yes. Okay. If we had, yes. say, uh, Jupiter turned into a sun like we saw in 2010 movie, okay, um, mm-hmm. it would affect the nocturnal animals because there would be a light during even the dark hours. And that would be a big deal. That would be damaging. So uh, you have to have a balance of both. You really do. Right. Okay, thank you for that. I I just wanted a clarification on between light and darkness. I think there's different meanings and purposes of that depending on what the um, inculcation is on the belief system. But I do believe that with witches, there is a definite polarity thing that goes on. And I loved your um, interpretation of how the goddess has come to serve. I believe it is her time now, and she will be coming forth, period. Absolutely. One of the goofy things that I've dealt with recently, oh, we've seen with the thing going on in Ukraine, we've seen uh, uh, veterans that were from, like, the Iraq War and from Afghanistan Mm -hmm. going over to help, okay, and I've mm-hmm. had people come to me, well, you're a combat veteran. Why don't you go help? I said, one, I'm 70, 70 years old in about three weeks. I would only get in the mm-hmm. way. And um, at this point in the game, it's sort of, excuse me, expression um, against my religion at this point, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, but that doesn't mean I can't help. Okay. Now, me. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do oh, I yeah. do? I've got magic. Now, I'm not going to do anything lethal. I don't believe in that. Okay, but that didn't mean yeah. that, um, gee whiz, those Russian tanks, there's nothing wrong with doing a little bit of monkey wrench magic on those things and affecting the electronics in them. And what have we been seeing yeah. recently? They're all bogged down in the mud. They're quitting. They're running out of fuel. They're breaking. I think the magic Indeed. worked a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, listen, if we can bend a spoon, we can certainly throw a monkey wrench in something. <laughs> the electronics you know? in those things is delicate as heck. And, um, you know, and I figured, oh, that, that's where I'm going to throw the monkey wrench because those tanks, those many ton tanks don't do very well when that delicate electronics poops out. And my attitude is, well, yeah. I just direct, the, direct my, my forces into the reality of those electronics. Yes, that is so. And, and don't you know. So, OK, on that on that note, since you have followed the UFO um for so long as well, do you think there was intervention? Because we as witches are throwing a monkey wrench as well. But what about the aliens in their craft, the ones that might be um, cheering for our side of the game? What do you think could be going on there? I don't know if they're interfering directly. I think it's against the rules for them mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. But they're okay. monitoring very closely from everybody I know that's in the business associated with observing that and being aware of what's going on. Um, they, they, there's higher activity there. They seem to be observing. I think what they're mm-hmm. very concerned about is that, that um, excuse the expression, the monkey boys might let the nukes loose. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and and I think if if local tactical nukes were were utilized uh, back in the '80s, we almost had a couple of exchanges then, and the 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 yeah. the, the, the offworlders shut the silos down. 
Yes, I remember Okay, that. and I think that was what I think that's why they're there now. They're watching the the local the local as they say the local nuclear guns. Uh they're looking at those local tactical missiles and things and I think they're monitoring that situation very closely and I think that if something I don't think they want this thing to evolve much further than it is and it's very risky. Yes. It is in both cases, and in their assessment of it and our dealing with it, because we've had many killed, and it's like at what point is – what is the tipping point for intervention? Well, yeah. okay, okay. let's look at intervention. Before that war started, yeah. people were saying why – back this around 19, 2019, 2020 time frame, people were saying how come – there seem to be more UFOs right now. And if you were to look at my charts in the last 20 years, from 2001 to 2020, we had 167,632 UFO sighting reports. Only one, only one that we, well, only one in 258 people reports what they see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So exactly. 20, 20% of the American public has said in polls that they have seen something, but it doesn't correspond to the ones that have been reported. Okay. Yes. So I think the bottom line is a lot of us thought before COVID thought the tipping point might be uh, the fact that we were getting more and more and more sightings. People talk about mm-hmm. the UFOs, oh, like the 40s, 50s, and 60s were the, you know, it's like an FM radio station, the best <laughs> hits from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we've had, okay, from 1960 to 2000, there were 13,156 total sighting reports for that 40-year period. Now, 13,156, okay, for that whole 40-year period. I've got that many for 2012, 2013, and 2014 on individual years. 13, 14,000 in those individual years. And we're, peaking, we're heading back towards a peak again. And a lot of us seem to think we might be at the ecological tipping point where if our governments don't give us disclosure, uh, ET is going to do it. They will. Okay. And there, there's another oh. point with the ET. Okay. Everybody, there's a Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation interviewed about 4,000, uh, 4,500 4, people who had been touched by ET, uh, abducted, that kind of thing. And while they all had similar experiences, they all had different experiences. But one common thing they all had, they told us, one, take care of our planet, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. two, all the people, no matter what they were, if they were agnostic, they came back spiritual. If they were hellfire and brimstone Bible thumpers, they came back spiritual. Amazing. And as a quote from the director of the institute there, Ray Hernandez, it seems like ET is trying to turn us all into mystics. I see. Yes. Okay. Interesting. So when you see a yeah. UFO sighting, it's a bit of a spiritual experience, and it expands your view of reality, which is what's necessary. And people who do magic have their view of reality expanded. Yes, it seems to crack open reality boxes for sure. Oh, for and, sure. Um, I've definitely uh, had UFO sightings of my own, uh, as have you, I'm sure. And then I have another question then. So if the UFOs are coming, have you seen a cadence, a pattern 
of when the occurrences have happened. I was wondering about their travel and how they would come here. And, uh, you know, I know that they're going up, but it seems to me in the past that they had a cadence of a certain number of years. Did did you see any of that in your research? It's a six to eight year window, typically about seven years. And if you were to look at it over the last 60 years, there's like a, it looks mm-hmm. like a little snake crawling across the lawn, hump, up, down, up, mm-hmm. hump, up and down, up and down, up and down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, there's yeah. a humpiness to it. And um, uh, a lot of people, in fact, in uh, 2013, the numbers started falling off rather radically, about 30% a year. And it, all the okay. sightings tanked. It's significant, though. Very. It, it, well, no, it, it tanked. <clears throat> 2017, the sighting numbers were in the toilet. Okay. okay, and I and everybody was saying, oh, I got all kinds of. I was still writing my newspaper column about UFOs, and mm-hmm. I had a seven-year column that I wrote a weekly column about UFOs. Okay, for a regular newspaper, and uh, people were, were telling me, oh, the Space Force chased them away, or this chased them away, or they they went home, they're bored with us. <laughs> you know, I heard every excuse you can shake a stick at. I kept trying to tell them this is part of a normal cycle. Okay, and they'll be back. Trust me, they'll be back. I took 2019 off from working on UFO stuff other than my column because the numbers mm-hmm. were in the toilet, and I figured they'll be back in a year or two. In okay. the spring of 2020, I get a phone call from a reporter out in Nevada who's an expert as well, and he said, hey, my phone's ringing off the hook. And I said, I've been uh, on sabbatical, so let me check. So I got some numbers from one of the national reporting services, dropped it into my mathematical model, and I said, hey, unless something changes, we're going to have the best year since 2012. Oh, wow. And okay. it turned and out is, exactly that way. In fact, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it took, the numbers took off. Okay. And what's, wow. there's, another, there's another issue. The um, leisure time is a big issue. Okay, most of the sightings happen, 68 to 75% of the sightings happen between 5 o'clock, uh, 5.30 at night and 11.30 at night with the bulk of it between 8.30 and 10.30. Okay? Uh, That's uh, where the bulk eight. of the sightings are. And, but leisure time is a driver as well. And a lot of people yes. heard, me, heard me on Coast to Coast AM say that, and they said, wait a minute, we're getting ready to go into lockdown. You've got a perfect natural laboratory yeah. here to check this. And March oh, wow. and April of 2020, the numbers were through the roof during lockdown. Okay. Yeah, wow. That's, that's amazing. And so I wonder what the correlation is between the uh, pandemic and the people staying home. And then, you know, people staying home could be buying binoculars or just doing anything to see the goose on the lake. And then they happen to see, you know, more than they expected. Uh, and uh, it's my uh, from my I think that the UFOs do cloak a bit and so that people are staying home and seeing this um, it'll be interesting to chart the statistics when we're through this I mean we're coming out of this I think maybe and um, to see where the numbers go but when people are attending to what is going on clearly you have been tracking and see that that did go up when people have that time to be looking at it. Mm-hmm. 
And I, mean, I tell kudos. a lot of people that, that the whole lockdown period was uh, it put the whole world in a monastic moment when you think about it. Yeah, isn't that great? Really, kind of? <laughs> wow. Well, it's been very, very enjoyable discussing that with you. I'm going to give you back to Ariel. Thanks for okay. asking all my questions. I really Thank appreciate you. My it. Thank you being on the show tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Fiona. You're welcome. Talk to you after. Bye-bye. So where do you want to go with this? Okay. <laughs> well, we're we're kind of getting ready to to, to wrap it up. We, we don't we don't have any other. Uh, as far as I can tell, we don't have anybody else on here that has a question. So um, this has just been very very informative. Um, I'm not an I'm not an expert on on Wicca like like Fiona, but <clears throat> excuse me, but I do I do understand that that um, the principles. And I like the way that you put it, you know, taking, talking, talking to the younger self and, and hooking it together with the higher self. Um, it's, it kind of like takes everything that you are and puts it in one place. Well, the, I make a big point in the book of saying um, the talking self here is just a meat sock. You know, it's just a yeah. costume we wear to live in reality, you know, and, 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 and that's it. The, the, the real essence of who we are is that spark that connects us to everything. And it's not separate. It, we are connected to everything, everywhere, every when. And I, I had to do a chapter in there because I've had people ask me about this. this is, well, does that mean if we're really meditated down, can we reach out and touch an alien 39 light years from now? And I said, theoretically, yes. But there's some hindrances, you know, are you quiet enough? You know, are you, there's a, n- a number of things you have to take into consideration, but technically, yes, we can. We can touch anything, anywhere, any temporal reference in the universe because she connects us to everything. And that's really, I mean, that's the, the basic premise that we have to, um, the, 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 consideration that we are separate and that we are uh, like inferior from the higher source. Yes. That, that's, I think a uh, false programming from organized religion because I mean, you know, why would they tell us that we have any power because then we might not come to church and, 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 you know, make the donations. So, um, yeah, mainstream faiths have been losing. Are, mainstream have been losing share for a long time. Okay, uh, the this, this, the county I moved from in upstate New York, Onondaga County, in upstate New York, the Syracuse area, um, they've had to close about twelve churches in the last ten years. Okay, and they were all mainstream churches. Okay. Um, I sat on the, um, as a Wicca priestess, I sat on uh, the local council of churches as a, as, a, as a guest member of the local council of churches. They're pretty much with all the Abrahamic faiths. And, you know, the, when I first went there, they, they were like, do you people have a God? And I said, yeah, we got him by the bushel, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm there in a black clergy shirt like them, but I've got a green collar. Okay. And um, 
once they figured out that as clergy, I did the same things they did, and I, I held the hands of the dying. I, I blessed the babies. I, I married people. Once they understood I, I was doing the same things they were, and I wasn't a devil worshiper, they were pretty cool, especially when I started pitching in with all – they started drafting me into all these committees and things. So uh, I was a hard worker for them as well. Um, so we've got a lot in common, and I have to do a – Pride Day speech, uh, Pagan Pride Day speech at this August uh, here for the Cleveland Pagan Pride Day. I was really quite flattered. I only lived here about three months. Um, th- th- my my tone, my flavor is we are all one. We are all one. If I look out into that audience of people and I look at all of you, it doesn't matter what faith you are, what face of God you you venerate. All I see is the great consciousness looking back at me. And what do we have? The great consciousness looking at itself. Or she is looking at herself. Wow. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that is, I mean, truly being at one with with all that is. Yes. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's just... Organized religion is is on the I, th- I mean it's it's on the way out, or it has to change quite a bit um, to to remain because yeah people are are becoming more spiritual. Yeah, very much so. One yeah. quick and note, that's one a good quick, thing. One quick one you'll like um, because I was a, a member of this 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 clerical group. We had some kind of an award ceremony going to go on. It was over at some apostolic church there in town. And I got over there, my spouse and I came in, and I went up to one of the reverends who was like the coordinator for it. And I said, hey, Frank, uh, is there anything I can do? It was pouring down rain outside. Okay, please understand. It is pouring down rain outside. He said, he just looks at me and he says, could you do something about the rain? I said, I'm on it. Went outside, did my little rain dance in the parking lot, and it stopped and two of the women uh, clergy were standing on the porch on under umbrellas there at the steps of the church and said that was a neat trick i walked in hey frank uh, anything else you need i took care of the rain and he glanced out the window and he glanced back at me i think we got it covered and that story got around the rest of the clergy <laughs> <laughs> So um, they were very, let us say, respectful thereafter. It was then I started getting invited on committees, invited to clergy dinners, that type of thing. So it it took a lot to show them that while I did the same things they did, I do it from a different perspective, and I'm connected differently. That's all. Right. Well, yeah, and you wouldn't be able to do what you do if you weren't connected like that. Yeah. And it's also a demonstration that – Anybody, everybody has that within them. Yes. But most of them, most people don't believe it, have been taught not to believe it. And, uh, and they've been taught to be scared of it, too. It. Yeah. Hollywood well, yeah. has perpetuated that image for years. You know, the, oh, to touch this is, oh, you're touching the devil, you know, all that stuff. And it's not. Yeah. Well, that, that just goes back to uh, the earliest you know, parts of of Christianity, because that was the main, you know, the main competition. 
so they had to they had to turn it into evil. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Did, but, I did a documentary <laughs> in college about that. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm there with you. Yeah. So that's yeah, basically well, it. That's what the book is. It's, it's, so I can – may I make, give a plug real quick? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, you want me to do it? No, I can do it here. Mystical okay. Musings Ma- – Magical Musings of a Rogue Witch. My name is Cheryl Costa. That's Cheryl with a C, Costa with a C. And if you go to Amazon and do the book search and just put in Cheryl Costa, uh, you'll probably see Witch come up or something like that. You plug it in there and you'll see the book. It's very affordably priced and uh, it's only twelve ninety nine. It's like only 10, 10 pounds over in England. I sold more copies in England than I did before I started seeing it in the States. It was interesting. So, <laughs> Well, it could be that, you know, the, the Celtic influence over there. So, well, that is, yes, you just go to Amazon and if you put, you know, Cheryl Costa in the search bar, um, or even Rogue Witch, I'm sure that would still come up. Yeah, well, um, if you put Cheryl I, Costa by itself, you'll get UFO books too. So, <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right, because you've got more than you've got a lot to offer, and um, we're just we're really thrilled that you were able to be with us tonight. And Do you know certainly, what the next project you know, is? pardon, what's your next you project? Know what the next pro- uh, well, it's eighty books. And remember, remember the reference, the UFO desk reference only went down to the county level. We couldn't do one that went down to like the zip code or municipal level, city level. And the reason we couldn't do that was because the book would be 6,000 pages, literally. So we decided to do an individual book for every individual, every state, right down to the city level. Total detail down to the city level. So it will be 50 books. And 29, 50 state books and 29 UFO shapes books with, where we're, we're plotting maps in there showing you where, they, where, where the shapes are by zip code, okay? Wow. And it will, when, when we are done with it, uh, we're doing about a book a week right now. Okay, we're building them one, one time at a time. Uh, not a lot of literary goes into them. You know, it's, it's mostly charts, graphs, tables, things like that. But... Um, when we get done, we'll have a total of about 80 books, and it will be the largest compilation of compiled, analyzed UFO statistics ever published in human history. And oh, wow. A couple Kudos. of witches. <laughs> Kudos to you and your partner. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, I mean, like you said, the, it's, it's just it, it's information. It's facts. It's you can't you can't deny that. So they're like nonfiction books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. And uh, the U- State University of New York at Albany, uh, back in November before I moved to Cleveland, they took my papers, both as an activist, uh, a trans activist back in the '80s and a witch activist in the early '90s. Uh, they took 25 crates of my papers, and it's in the archives. That basically is immortal, so to speak. And all the UFO, every, as we publish all these UFO things, we send them whatever they got, you know, whatever we've got. And they're, they're adding to the collection. But um, the witch book is part of this collection now. And uh, a lot of my mystical writings are part of their collection now, stuff that's not published. So, uh, hell, they got my grimoire. Okay, so uh, it, yeah. this, this university has this archive of a 21st century witch and it's I'm very proud of that 
Wow. Well, that's quite the accomplishment. And it's also a, you know, an affirmation uh, that that there's going to be, it's going to be uh, what is the word going forward longevity. It's it's going to be there. Yes. For future generations. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's that's well, the hope. Excellent. Excellent. This has been fun. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Oh, it has been our pleasure, Cheryl, and you're welcome anytime. To, to come back when you have an announcement to make or you got something new coming out, just you know, send an email to Lavendar, and uh, we'll can. look forward to speaking with you uh, again at some point. Okay, anytime, anywhere. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Cheryl Costa. So that is it for us tonight, boys and girls. Uh, we will be back two weeks from tonight with another show. So in the meantime, make sure you hold gratitude in your heart, and give compassion instead of judgment. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Match must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.